Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 20 of Chris's on Infinite Earths, here at the Chris and Reggie channel. You can find us at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and all the places where noise goes. Uh, now this week, I wanted to discuss, because I think uh, I think we have Comic-Con this week. I really don't follow conventions the way I used to. Uh, but I think it's Comic-Con, so I figured why not talk about my history with uh, conventions, uh, both big and small. In addition to that, we're going to be discussing Justice League of America number 224 by Kurt Busiek. And uh, there's a reason for that, because uh, the last time I was at a convention, I had the opportunity to sit down and uh, speak to Mr. Busiek uh, about, among other things, this very issue. So I think that'll be, uh, it'll be fun to do. And I do have some audio from my conversation with, uh, with Kurt Busiek that uh, I'll put in here a little bit uh, later on in the show. So uh, you can hear he and I discuss this very issue. But first, a uh, little bit of my history with conventions. Growing up in the mid, early to mid-90s, I suppose, getting into the fandom, getting into the, uh, the comics uh, scene, I guess. I, the co- first comic book shows I went to weren't really what you think of when you think about conventions today, you know, where with celebrities and creators and stuff like that showing up. Uh, these were actually uh, smaller conventions that were held inside shopping malls. Uh, Folks of a certain age might remember, you know, the mall con or the mall convention where you'd have, like, all the local vendors, all the local shops would uh, show up uh, at this, at a mall uh, in wherever, you know, the part of the mall where the stores aren't, you know, that, that, that walkway, the, <laughs> the middle section. Uh, that's where they would put up uh, booths or tables or whatever, and they would bring comics to sell. And those were my first uh, ever shows. Uh, my parents would uh, do grocery shopping at the Pathmark inside the Sunvet Mall, and that's on uh, Long Island. And that was a mall where they would have a, uh, every so often they would have a convention. And, you know, I never knew about these conventions. I didn't know, uh, I never really, you know, set my watch to them. It was just if I went one weekend and it was there, I'd walk around and I'd have a good time doing it. Uh, the that was this was the first time that I saw certain comics uh, that really kind of blew my mind because going to the one comic shop that I did I didn't get uh, that much of an opportunity to see some of the you know some of the the, the the comics that show up on the trading cards you know like the big issues the first appearances the origin stories the you know the this is the first such and such creator on such and such character uh, sort of a situation so. That was uh, really eye-opening to me to go to these mall conventions because you'd have so many different vendors there and they would have so many different wares, you know? So many different books that, while I was aware of them, I'd never actually laid eyes on them. So, really, really cool to do that. And uh, it was one of my first big purchases uh, was at one of these mall conventions. Uh, We talked uh, in the ElfQuest episode that I paid $5 for an issue of ElfQuest, and I thought it was just the biggest deal in the world when I did that. And uh, to to take a step back, uh, I I got into the X-Men comics in a big way around the time of Executioner's Song. That was a crossover in 1992. Uh, I'd, I was already reading Uncanny X-Men and X-Men Volume 2, but I was—I really wasn't uh, dabbling so much with X-Factor and X-Force until that crossover. So I, I guess in that regard, the, the crossover actually worked. It made me read something that I wouldn't ordinarily read, and it made me stick with those uh, titles. 
uh, which is, you know, I, I guess the point <laughs> of a crossover. So I was uh, buying, I bought my first issue of X Factor, and uh, and I was absolutely amazed that it was like issue 84. You know, I, I didn't realize that X Factor as a concept and as a title had been around so long come 1992. I, I thought it was another new book. I was expecting like, you know, issue 16, just like X-Force and X-Men Volume 2. I thought these were all new books. So when I saw that this was such a high-numbered title at the time, um, I couldn't imagine seeing the first few issues of that in the wild, you know. And uh, that uh, this at this mall convention here at the Sunvet Mall, I saw X-Factor number one, and it was like $4.00. And I, I flipped out. <laughs> you know, I needed to get this book because it, it seemed it was one of those things that I had built up in my head because I, you know, was reading it at the time and it was in the 80s, uh, you know, the, the issue number 80s, and uh, never could imagine that I would have, uh, that I would own a first issue of something that old. So I, uh, you know, I begged and pleaded and I was given, you know, a few bucks and uh, I did buy that. And was just on cloud nine because I thought I had, you know, a piece of history, you know, which, uh, for com with, with comics, that's a big part of it for me is that, uh, these are, you know, history. These are historical things to me. Um, <laughs> to go a little bit on the other direction here, I also bought like, uh, like three fifty cent issues of wizard magazine that, uh, <laughs> I think I just saved the, uh, the, uh, vendor, uh, the trip to the garbage can <laughs> and I bought them from him. But, uh, I thought those were cool too, and I, I still I still love my Wizard magazines. But uh, that was like my first time at a uh, at a mall convention was uh, was coming into possession of X Factor number one, and I thought that was just really really cool. And I was if you if you read X Factor, I mean it's uh, you've got Cyclops and uh, Jean Grey, you've got the original five as the team. I, I'm not blowing any minds here, but that to me was just mind-blowing because I never knew about that first iteration of X-Factor coming in when I did. I I was accustomed to, you know, Havoc and Polaris and, uh, you know, Quicksilver being on the team. So seeing that it was a completely different team was uh, was pretty uh, was pretty crazy. I thought that was uh, really neat. Um, now, living in New York, you'd hear or you'd see in comics, uh, you'd sometimes see commercials for it, they had these uh, these big shows very often, it felt. It felt like it was a few times a year at the Apenta Hotel in Manhattan. And uh, I always wanted to go to one of these shows at, at the Penta. And uh, it, it, it stinks. I wasn't able to because I was so young. And by the time I was old enough to uh, you know have my mom say it was cool to go into Manhattan, uh, I had kind of dropped out of comics. This is... Probably put me at around 15 or so. It was 1995. Uh, I had dropped out of comics briefly at this time. So I didn't ever get to go to the Penta. And uh, I've told this story before on uh, one, of, uh, one of our shows. But I remember I went to the comic shop with my or my regular, you know, I think comics at that time. The X-Men were doing their X, X-Men Deluxe uh, series. So... Everything was like a dollar ninety nine, I think, because it had the uh, had the new glossy paper, which I hate. And uh, but it was, you know, the prices went up. You know, there was the slick paper, and uh, it wasn't the newsprint anymore. 
And uh, I went there with two bucks or two and change to pay for whatever issue of X-Men was coming out. And it turned out that the issue of X-Men that was uh, on the stands that week was X-Men Volume 2, number 45. Which, if you don't know, that one has a, uh, has a special cover. <laughs> it is a uh, celebration of... Oh boy, I think it was like the 20th anniversary of Giant Size X-Men number one, or something like that. It was something very, very silly. Some silly anniversary. And uh, and it was like uh, four bucks instead of two. So I looked at it, and I realized, you know, they could do this to me at any time. You know, uh, Marvel could uh, decide that they're going to celebrate the, you know, this is the ninth anniversary of Wolverine smoking a cigar, and, and all of a sudden... Hit me with a uh, special hologram, holofold, whatever cover, and uh, just price me out of out of buying it. And uh, and with that, I dropped out. <laughs> I I uh, was very embittered by the uh, by the enhanced price for what I felt wasn't something that necessarily needed to be celebrated. Uh, and at that point in time, it was 1995, so celebrations were. Not what they once were. Um, it felt like a lot of the celebrations in the early 90s were more organic, where you were celebrating like 30 years of Spider-Man or 30 years of the Fantastic Four, 30 years of the X-Men and Avengers. But then we get to this weird, yeah, well, 20 years ago, there was giant size x X-Men. It, it just didn't feel like something that we really needed to pay extra to uh, to celebrate. And it's it's too bad because that was a I, of course I've gone back and I've bought all those issues that I missed out on during my break. But uh, X Men number forty five was uh, really really good. <laughs> so it's it's uh, just too bad that uh, it got hit with that you know gimmick cover and uh, exorbitant price. But it was because of that issue that I never got to go to the Penta uh, the Penta Hotel for a uh, for a convention in Manhattan. <laughs> My uh, my next opportunity to go to a comic convention wasn't until I moved out to Arizona. Uh, the family moved out here in the middle of 1997. Two days after I graduated high school, we moved out here. And uh, I was alone. You know, I didn't really uh, didn't know anybody out here. I, you know, I think back to, uh, to moving out here, and I was just so happy that I was able to graduate high school with all my friends out in a Connecticut high school. I got to I got to graduate with all my friends that I had been with for years, but uh, at the same time, it put me in a position to where when I got out here, I wasn't immediately going to go to a high school, you know, so I wasn't going to meet anybody. I wasn't going to really it was going to be more difficult to make friends is what I'm trying to say. And uh so I really didn't know anybody, and I was out here by myself, and uh, so I went back into comic fandom. That's uh, what made me relook into the long boxes again and uh, rediscover some of uh, my favorites and decide to give comic collecting another go. And I looked for conventions out here, but Arizona isn't so much a hopping place <laughs> as uh, New York was when it came to the convention scene. And uh, you got to also remember, this is 1997, the bubble had burst. So mall conventions, they really uh, weren't happening so much. And uh, the one time I did find a mall convention was probably, I want to say, boy, it wasn't too long after I got out here. It might have been 98. 
and it was at the Christown Mall in uh, in beautiful Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, I went in there because uh, they had the same sort of setup as they had at the Sunvet Mall, but there were no comics there. It was all Pokemon cards. They called it a they they they, they advertised comics, but it was all Pokemon uh, game cards. Uh, so. I didn't stick around too long. I did ask a few people if they knew where the comics were, and they looked at me like I had three heads. Uh, but that was uh, my first my first Arizona taste of a mall convention, and uh, it uh, it's actually the last time I'd ever gone to a mall convention, even to this day, because they just really don't exist anymore. I mean, malls hardly exist anymore, so uh, mall conventions even less so. A uh, few years later, they started an actual uh, state convention here. It was uh, the Arizona Ca- it was uh, the Phoenix Cactus Comic Con. It, today, or up till a couple of years ago, it was just the Phoenix Comic Con. But uh, it was the Phoenix Cactus Comic Con, and I went to the first one. It was uh, probably about a forty-five minute to an hour drive from my house, and I was working overnights at this point. So I, uh, I worked over a Saturday night, and then that Sunday, I went home, I drove all the way to the house, took a shower, drove all the way back across town, past where I worked, <laughs> to go to this convention. And uh, if you're familiar with, uh, with Arizona and the 90s and comics, uh, there was an imprint or a publisher called Chaos Comics. They're the guys who did uh, Lady Death, uh, Evil Ernie, it's uh, Brian Polito's group. And this this first Arizona Cactus Con or Phoenix Cactus Con, whatever it was called, it was mostly Chaos Comics. Um, they had, uh, I mean, they were local, so they were able to uh, to really show their stuff there. Not a group I ever really got into. Um, yeah, I'm I'm more of a I'm not a meat and potatoes guy, but I'm you know I'm a cape and cowl kind of guy, I guess. I I like the superheroes. That's really all I want out of comics. Uh, as a as a comfort food, as a as a fandom, is something I'm going to follow. So the first con I went to, this first Cactus Con, there were very th- th- there really wasn't a whole lot in the way of uh, Marvel or DC. So uh, stuck around for a little bit and uh, left. <laughs> you know, we didn't. I don't think I even bought anything that day. I think I got like a little goodie bag that they gave out when you hand, when you walked in, but uh, I don't think I actually opened my wallet. Um, a few years later, though, uh, when I fancied myself more of a comic book writer, I guess, even though I've never <laughs> written a comic book, um, I volunteered to work the uh, Cactus Comic Con, and uh, and that was a that was an experience. So if you've ever volunteered for a Comic Con, um, you know I really don't know if we experienced the same thing because. The con, when I volunteered for the con, it was still very much a young convention. It was only had a couple of years under its belt. Uh, a lot of the kinks were being ironed out. And uh, and, and it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it kind of walked the, walked the line between being way too lenient and way too demanding. Like I, the reason I wanted to go there was to sit in on some uh, some panels. I wanted to listen to people, uh, local local creators uh, had panels, and I wanted to you know pick their brains and just listen to them speak. And uh, 
and the, the uh, organizer wouldn't let me because I was working. So I missed out on a lot of what I was trying to uh, trying to see there. But uh, that one, it was odd. This was around the time that cross-gen was a thing, and they sent out a bunch of cross-gen trades to be handed out or raffled off as uh, door prizes, and they were all volume twos. You know, so you'd get, like, Meridian Volume 2 or Ruse Volume 2. So you weren't really getting you weren't really getting in on the ground floor if you won one of these door prizes. You were getting issues, you know, 6 through 12 or whatever the case may be, which, uh, I don't know, it, it kind of struck me as odd. Um, you know, I don't know how the volunteering goes today. I think it's probably a lot more organized today in as far as the... Uh, the volunteer setup. I'm sure you're probably designated to certain duties. Where uh, earlier it was kind of, it was kind of the chicken with its head cut off. You know, running around. You know, okay, well you cover here, you cover here. Okay, now you switch, go over here. And uh, it was a uh, moderately fun. Um, I I wouldn't volunteer again, and I haven't since then. But uh, I'm glad I did it because it, you know it's a it's something I can talk about. I guess. Uh, I think this was around 2003 or 2004, and at this point, I decided that I was uh, I was done with conventions. Uh, I uh, I really didn't want to. Yeah, the thing with me, I, I I don't like being crowded in in like a room full of people. You know, that's what that's what gets into my head every time I think about going to a convention or any time I think about going to. Even even if like a local comic shop has a sale, I always I always think to myself it's like I'm gonna go there and there's gonna be a whole lot of people and uh, that's just one of my anxiety triggers I guess is that just being crowded and crammed with people it just really kind of kind of gets me sweating so uh, I, I figured you know I think I'm done with the convention scene and uh, fast forward all the way to 2016. And uh, kind of the purpose of this episode is to talk about this Comic-Con in particular. This is, again, the Phoenix Comic-Con. I'm not a very well-traveled guy, so (laughs) if I'm talking about going somewhere, it's generally going to be somewhere local here in Arizona. But uh, i got to go back to 2016, and I had uh, just started blogging over at Chris's on Infinite Earths uh, and uh, was going every day. And one day, I get an email from a fellow who I never expected to get an email from. Uh, Before I got into blogging and uh, talking about comics, I I would sometimes check out, you know, various blogs, various uh, websites, fandom sites, stuff like that. And one of my favorites in the years leading up to actually picking up, you know, digital pen and, and starting to blog was, uh, was one called DC in the 80s. And uh, DC in the 80s was uh, a, a Tumblr site when I first discovered it. And it was just, really, it was everything I wanted out of a, uh, out of a comic book website. Because it, you know, I, I always use the word gestalt, and I, I think... Nine out of ten times I use it, I use it incorrectly, but I'm going to use it again here. It uh, gets me into the gestalt of when these books were coming out. It gets you into the now, you know. And uh, Justin, the fellow behind DC in the 80s, he would uh, he would put up uh, house ads and just regular ads and reviews of certain storylines and miniseries and ongoing series. 
I just loved it. You know, I thought it was just the the coolest uh, DC website that I had seen, and uh, and wouldn't you know it? After about a month and a half of blogging, I got an email from Justin, the guy from DC in the eighties, and uh, he just said that he liked what I did and he wanted to talk, and uh, we started talking, and I started doing a little bit of work on his site, and he asked what I if I would uh, go to Comic Con. If, uh, you know, if, if he could get me a media badge, would I go? And not thinking twice about it, um, actually thinking that I really wanted to be part of something, you know? And this was a site that I had long admired, and now it was a blog site, uh, the, the, the fanzine that it is now. And I really wanted to be a part of that, and I really wanted to do whatever I could to, uh, to put myself into the, the good graces, you know? And, uh just do my best to uh participate and to and to contribute to the to the site and uh so I said yes. Uh I think maybe part of me thought that he wouldn't be able to get me a media badge, I don't know. But uh sure enough, um he got me a media badge. And so I uh I was like, "Okay, I guess I, you know, I guess I got to go now." <laughs> and he he set me up with uh Three uh, creators who were going to show up there to uh, to get interviews with. I had never interviewed anybody before in my life, um, but I really wasn't nervous. I don't I don't get starstruck terribly often. Um, we're going to talk about a, a a time where I was in just a few minutes, but I don't really get starstruck. So the fact that I was going to be speaking to certain people didn't really get me didn't really get my dander up. Didn't really make me nervous. What I was nervous about was the fact that I was going to be in a crowded room. <laughs> I was going to be surrounded by people, mostly dressed like Harley Quinn and Deadpool. But still, I didn't want to be crowded. And uh, as the days uh, wore on and it got closer to being the time to go, I was getting more and more antsy about it. And uh, I didn't. I wasn't so forthcoming with that i didn't really express my concerns or my worry or just my overall discomfort um and i i take full responsibility for not doing that because i really should have uh but i was supposed to speak with uh, terry Beatty, uh the fellow who uh co-created wild dog i somebody who was involved with the legion of superheroes who i cannot remember their name <laughs> And uh, and Kurt Busiek. And instead of being like a one-day event, uh, you know, Comic-Con is now a multi-day event. Uh, again, I'm not blowing any minds here. Folks who are more <laughs> in tune with the convention world will, you know, that's obvious. But, uh, you know, growing up, Comic-Cons were like a day, except for like the real big ones. And it started Thursday, but uh, I was doing something on Thursday, so I couldn't go until Friday. And I went on a uh, Friday uh, afternoon. Um, it was a particularly hot day um, out here in you know Phoenix. It's it's hot in the summertime, but uh, this was particularly hot. Uh, and we'll we'll talk more about that later on. But uh, I went on this Friday and I walked the entire uh, facility. It was several floors, and I walked the entire thing. And I had my wife with me. She was a uh, going to be my photographer that day 
and uh, or for that weekend, I should say. But uh, we walked the entire thing, and I could not find a single comic book person. I asked uh, the volunteers, I'm like, hey, where is such and such guy? And they're just like, huh? I'm like, okay, well, where are the comic book people? And, and I'd get blank stares. And I'm like, are there any comic book people here? And I'd get blank stares. I just didn't know what to do, and I, I started getting mad. I started really getting annoyed, and then, uh, and I figured, okay, well, maybe, maybe they're just not here tonight. You know, maybe, maybe these, maybe these comic people only show up for the second half of the convention. And so I'm like, okay, well, not to waste the entire night, and not to, not to totally forfeit the thirty dollars I paid to park a half mile away. I'll do a little bit of shopping. Oh boy, um, if you are someone who likes comic books, going to a comic book convention to buy comic books is the stupidest thing you can do because there aren't any, or at least there weren't that day. I mean, I'm walking around looking for comics and uh, there just were not any, com- I mean, I could buy I could buy 55 flavor of Funko Pop or I could buy something that CGC slabbed, but I couldn't, there were no back issue boxes to go fl- to go rifle through. And uh, the few booths that did have some comics, I wasn't able to t- tell heads from tails from what where I could look to find what I wanted. It was uh, just really, really disappointing. Um, it just wasn't what I want from a comic convention. But you know, I I am part of a different generation uh, than I think Comic Con is uh, is trying to promote and sell to. Uh, but I, I stomped out of that place that night, and uh, boy, I, <laughs> I I laid into I laid into poor Justin like it was his fault that I had a bad night, and uh, I really uh, reacted poorly. I uh, I let my discomfort with the entire situation really take over, and uh, I wasn't very pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I take full responsibility for being, you know, kind of a jackass, or being a complete jackass, I should say. But uh, I told this guy, I'm like, I'm like, you send me to this place, I can't find. There's nobody there who knows comics. There's nobody there who can point me in the direction of anybody who's ever seen a comic book before. And uh, the poor dude's just trying to help me. He's like, oh no, I'll, I'll, I'll get you maps. I'll, I'll find you. I'll find you where to go. And I'm just like, screw it. I'm done. I'm not going back to that place. I'm never going back to that place. And I was just, I was really, I was an, I was an ass. <laughs> and uh, I really, I, I feel terrible about that. I, I actually think about that quite often because up to that point, uh, Justin and I had a, a really solid friendship uh, we were building, and. Uh, I definitely ruined that uh, in in my petulant and precious outburst. Um, and while I didn't want to go back, I still am uh, I still am a, a man who's full of Catholic guilt. So uh, the next day, I did go back. Um, that certainly doesn't undo my outburst the night before, uh, but I did go back because I realized that I did agree to something. I, I did. I made a point of volunteering for for a job, and uh, I didn't want to. Uh, and you know, he really, he put his neck out for me too in getting these media passes, and I really didn't want my you know persnickettiness to hurt his website, especially since it is a website that I enjoy very very much, and I think there's a lot of passion behind it. I uh, and so I went back the next day, 
unfortunately, uh, the the fellow who I can't remember, the Legion guy, wasn't there. Uh, I guess he only did the first half, um, but I didn't see him the day before. And uh, Terry Beatty had a family situation, and he had to leave. So that left Kurt Busick. And uh, it took me a while, but I did manage to track him down. And uh, I, I just lucked into it, actually, because I asked people again. I said, hey, where are the comic book people? I went to the volunteers, and uh, still nobody could tell me anything. Somebody told me what floor they were on, but that was all they could tell me. I, I guess they were too busy lining people up to pay $200 to take a picture with Ralph Macchio. But uh, it was just happenstance that I wandered down this one really, really narrow uh, booth-laden aisle, and I thought I saw George Perez. And sure enough, hey, it's George Perez, and he's by himself. There's nobody there talking to George Perez. I look across the aisle, there's Marv Wolfman, and nobody is talking to Marv Wolfman. He's there by himself. And I turn to the wife, and I'm like, I'm like, those are the guys who did Crisis. And she's like, what, what the hell's Crisis? But I'm like, okay, you just got to trust me. This is a big deal. Those guys did Crisis. They did the new Teen Titans. And there's nobody here. Nobody's giving them a second look. I said, Ralph Macchio's line has 100 people waiting on it. And here we have George Perez and Marv Wolfman, and there's no one bothering them. And, uh, and of course, that isn't to say that people weren't bothering them throughout the day. But at that moment, there was nobody there. And uh, I continue down, and there's there's more creators, and it's just there's nobody there. And finally, there's Kurt Busiek, and uh, he was gracious enough to let me sit next to him for about a half hour, maybe 45 minutes, just picking his brain, getting some uh, getting some really neat information. And uh, you'll listen to a bit of that in just a little bit. But uh, we talked about the the issue we're going to be discussing today, and we also talked about. JLA Avengers, we talked about uh, his pitch to uh, exonerate Jean Grey from the atrocities of the Dark Phoenix, and uh, had a blast doing it, you know, uh, I'd never interviewed anybody before, um, I've interviewed very, very few people since, but uh, I think it was a good time, I think it was a decent interview, um, and I think I got some uh, interesting information, if, if not repetitive information, because I'm sure I asked him the same questions that everybody else asked him, but... You know, it was uh, my questions, and uh, he he answered them, and I was able to uh, to send that into uh, to Justin over at DC in the '80s, so he could post it on the site. But that isn't the big story of my trip to the Phoenix Comic Con 2016. Uh, after I finished with uh, with Busick and uh, made sure that the recording actually took, because had it not, it would have been a very very uncomfortable situation. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, me and the wife were walking down that aisle to, to leave, and out of the corner of my eye, I see Dan Jerkins. And uh, it goes without saying, nobody was talking to him. He was there by himself. And I pulled the wife aside, and I said, that's the guy who killed Superman. And she's like, what? I'm like, that's the guy who killed Superman. She said, uh, she's like, there's nobody over here. I said, I know. I said, he's all by himself. I don't I don't get it. And, uh, and so we kept walking, and she's like, go talk to him. I'm like, ah, what am I going to say? Uh, I mentioned earlier, I don't get starstruck, but this is Dan Jurgens. This is the guy who killed Superman. This is the guy who changed the way I look at comic books. And uh, and after some more prodding, I, I went over and I said hello to Dan Jurgens. I shook his hand. I actually asked him, like, can I shake your hand? And he said, of course, of course. And he shook my hand and 
and uh, we talked for a couple minutes. Uh, I didn't get clearance to interview him, and I and I didn't know if he had anything planned, so I didn't wanna, I didn't wanna you know shove uh, shove my phone in his face and be like, hey, can can we talk for a bit? But uh, uh, I, you know, I did ask him like, hey, would you mind taking a picture? He's like, of course, of course, come over, and he put his arm around me. We took a picture, and uh, couldn't be more gracious, and uh, really made my day, and uh, made it so the the entire trip the. Uh, the now sixty dollars I paid to park a half mile away wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't for for nothing. Uh, yeah, I got the, uh, I got a lot of neat information from Kurt Busiek, and I did get a picture with a creator who I respect and admire a great deal. So that was really cool. Um, later on that day, when I got home, I uh, I ate a little bit of crow. I sent I sent Justin an email to once again apologize for being a petulant little jerk. An a-hole the day before Um, And he was cool You know, he was cool I told him all about, you know Hey, I'm just not good with in groups I'm not good being I'm not good around, you know, a whole lot of people And uh, he understood He was very, very kind But unfortunately, you know The friendship we had that we were building uh, It really never went back to what it it could have been And I take 100% responsibility for that Uh, I've got no reason to uh, think that Justin might be listening now, but uh, if you are, I am very, very sorry for that. Uh, that was uh, really, I, I, I treated you poorly, and uh, you didn't deserve it. All you were doing was giving me an opportunity, and uh, and I let my, my petulance and uh, my preciousness uh, get in the way and uh, ruin something that was very, very nice. So, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's my trip to Comic-Con, but... The story doesn't quite end there because uh, I mentioned last week that I worked on the road repairing windshields in very, very extreme heat. And something about heat is uh, it, it really does a number on your body, especially if you're not drinking water. Uh, <laughs> starting that job, being accustomed to working at a desk, uh, I, I, generally speaking, the only thing I would drink during the day is coffee. I would have a you know a, a several cups of coffee throughout the day uh, because it didn't really matter. I was in an air conditioned office or a heated office in the winter. It didn't really matter, so I would drink coffee. Um, so I would be out on the road repairing windshields, drinking coffee. Uh, if it was hot out, cold out, I was drinking hot coffee every single day, and uh, it got to the point where I thought I had. A problem with... Uh, I thought I had a dental problem because my jaw hurt. I, it, to the point where I couldn't even chew food. Um, this is after a few months of working on the road. And my jaw was just throbbing. I couldn't I couldn't chew gum. It hurt that much. And uh, a buddy of mine went... And I went to lunch. A guy I worked with. We went to uh, lunch. And I just ordered another coffee. And he's like, oh, you're not going to get food? I'm like, no, nah, I, can't, I can't eat, man. Uh, my mouth, it's just, I, I got to get into a dentist. My mouth hurts. And he's like, he's like, does it feel like it's like grinding? I said, yeah. He's like, he's like is, there, is there sometimes a popping? I'm like, yeah, yeah, sometimes. He's like, okay, is, does it throb when, you're, when you put your head down on the pillow? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it does. He's like, he's like dude, you're dehydrated. I'm like, what? He's like, no, you, you need to drink water. You're not drinking water. That's why you're having this this reaction. Sure enough, I start drinking water, I saw pounding water, and the pain in my jaw went away. And so I learned a very, very important lesson about conducting myself properly in extreme heat. 
Then we fast forward to this uh, Comic-Con where I'm walking a half mile to Comic-Con. I'm, I'm in this crowded room. I'm walking around the, the downtown area trying to get around. I didn't drink any water the entire weekend. And I got so, so dehydrated and so sick. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, the next day, the day after Comic-Con, the, uh, the Monday, my wife's grandmother, we had to take her in for a procedure. Uh, she's a, a two-time cancer survivor, and this was the second bout. And we had to take her in to be prepped to have... This was a, a melanoma on the bottom of her foot. So we had to take her in for the prep. And we get there, and we're waiting, and all of a sudden I'm just like... It's like I wanted to throw up. But uh, but there was nothing there. Was, there was nothing there, you know? They say if like one thing, if you're if you're in extreme heat and you don't you stop sweating, that's when you need to really get worried because you know there's no fluid, there's nothing to sweat at that point, and uh, and I started feeling that way. You know, I was I was very very hot, but I wasn't sweating, and I felt like I I felt like I was gonna throw up, but there was nothing there, and uh, I was able to get us home, but then I I was I just crashed out for a couple of days and realized that. Hey, idiot, you didn't drink any water that weekend, and uh, <laughs> you got yourself a little bit of heat exhaustion. So that was uh, the gift that kept on giving from the 2016 Phoenix Comic Con. Uh, but uh, I think that'll do it for this, uh, for this portion of the program. Uh, right now, I'm going to jump right over to the horns, and then we will discuss Justice League of America number 224 by Kurt Busiek. Alrighty, Justice League of America number 224, cover dated March 1984. It's called The Supremacy Factor, written by Kurt Busiek, pencils Chuck Patton, inks Dick Giordano, a pair of letterers John Costanza and Todd Klein, colored by Gene D'Angelo, edited by Len Wein, came with a cover price of 75 cents. Now we open at an outdoor beer garden slash restaurant. Clark Kent, he's got a club soda with a twist of lemon. Hal Jordan's got a beer, and they await the arrival of their Justice League comrades. Oliver Queen is the next to arrive, and his pals express surprise that Dinah Lance isn't with him. Ollie claims she's got something to attend to, but she'll be along shortly, so don't worry. We jump over to Dinah in her Black Canary tugs as she watches some would-be muggers get beaten down by their victim. She's shocked to see the victim's finesse and level of skill. She's also affected by the fact that it seems that he's taking this beating a bit too far. So we've got these these uh, crumb bums here trying to rob a guy, but this guy is turned the tables, but is doing so with a great amount of finesse. She attempts to intervene and gets thrown judo-style for her troubles. This trench-coated fella appears to have her number. In desperation, she lets out a canary cry, but it has no effect on the man. Lucky for her, though, Superman's superhearing picks up on her cry, and so the leaguers hop into action. They arrive on the scene only to find that they are no match for this individual either. Superman gets launched into orbit with but a punch. He does manage to tear the baddie's jacket off, though. During the f distraction, the foe flees. The League realizes that this may be their toughest threat yet, and they decide it's time to organize a meeting. We jump up to the satellite, where the team goes over the events of the afternoon. In the pocket that Superman tore off the fella's coat, there just happened to be a scrap of paper with a formula on it. The leaguers pass the scrap around, and none are able to decipher it. That is, until Firestorm gets his hands on it. 
The League is surprised that he's able to do so, as they are unaware that Professor Martin Stein is also part of that Firestorm Matrix. The code, when popped into the computer, pulls up the name Dr. Joel Cochin. The threesome of Firestorm, Black Canary, and Green Arrow quickly set out to get to the bottom of this. Firestorm carries Dinah and Ollie on something of a superhero swing set. Uh, it's uh, very adorable. It's, <laughs> it's, it looks like they're on a swing set. It's funny. Uh, they arrive at Cochin's house, only to find that there are no doors. As the three approach, the wall opens, and the man behind it appears to be using Firestorm's own power to do so. The man introduces himself as Paragon, and he states, Anything you can do, I can do better. During a brief melee, Paragon uses both Firestorm's and Black Canary's powers to get the better of the leaguers. It's revealed that Paragon takes on the powers of whoever is near him, only he's able to perform those powers at a higher level. Of course, he makes short work of them, and he mounts them on a wall as though they were butterflies behind glass. Paragon offers that he's been working on a machine. This machine would seek to eliminate 90% of the world's population, which would leave only 10% of the best and brightest, and they would all be stuck answering to him. As luck for him would have it, now that Firestorm is his captive, he can simply materialize the parts he needs for this machine rather than go seek them out. During his ranting and raving, the rest of the League, that is, Superman, Wonder Woman, Red Tornado, and Green Lantern, they all arrive on the scene. A battle rages on, with Paragon really relying on the powers of Firestorm. He materializes a kryptonite chain around Superman and just decimates the rest of the team. In all of his rage, he gives Firestorm the old bang-zoom straight-to-the-moon punch. As he's about to give Ollie the killing blow, he comes to find he sent Firestorm too far out of range in order to draw upon his powers anymore. In the confusion, Canary comes up with a plan and begins to direct traffic. She puts Red Tornado and Green, Ar Green Lantern on the offense, which makes perfect sense. Uh, Reddy and Hal's powers are artificial, and therefore not mimicable by Paragon. With Paragon on the ropes, Ollie fires off a gas arrow, which takes its toll on the villain. The League takes turns beating on this yehu, ultimately wrapping up with Black Canary giving him a kick square to the face. The League are victorious and stand around their fallen foe. It is a conditional victory, because they may have won the day, but really, where in the world is there going to be a prison that can hold Paragon? Alrighty, had a lot of fun with this one. I have, a fu I have fun with this one every time I try it. Uh, yeah, it seems that issues that boast a guest writer, especially during this vintage, were usually just inventory stories. Uh, uh, nothing really felt like it mattered when you uh, when you get a guest a guest written book. Uh, this issue, while it was a one and done, it it actually felt like it advanced the characters a bit. You know, it felt it felt like it fit within the ongoing series. You know, I did enjoy that all too brief secret identity get together that opened the issue. Uh, it's so rare we get to see these characters out of costume and just you know taking in a day. Uh, the Justice League books, until the uh, Giffen de Mateus era, seem they seem more heavy on nonstop action and, and far lighter on characterization, which you know I guess is understood uh, because I mean all, most of the team members had their own solo books, so we got to know those characters there rather than in Justice League. The character of Paragon is a strange one. I really dig the concept, but he feels like a like one of those foes where the heroes are going to have to work out some real convoluted plan to stop him each time he shows up. Uh, that's probably why he's only appeared a handful of times. Still an interesting character, though. 
Uh, I, I mean, he probably could serve as a, a big bad anytime DC needs. So um, I, you could you could put a whole whole events around this guy, and uh, it would work out just fine. Uh, Chuck Patton's art, I really really liked. Um, you know, I, I I think I've slept on this guy because uh, you know I'm looking at these faces he's drawn, and they're just wonderful. Uh, this black canary face here, just uh, real real beautiful faces he draws. Um, uh, the writing, it's Kurt Busiek, uh, who he's responsible for some of my favorite comics. Uh, probably, I, I would say, in my opinion, he's probably the best Avengers writer that I've ever read. Uh, I don't think I've ever enjoyed the Avengers as much as when he was writing it. Um, so uh, maybe I'm a little biased. <laughs> I thought this was very well written, and I really wish he'd spent more time on the Justice League during this time here. Uh, it's funny, when I first reviewed this, I kind of waxed nostalgic on the post-Infinite Crisis story he did. Uh, he co-wrote with Jeff Johns, so the Up, Up, and Away storyline. And I, 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 write, I wrote in my piece that I, I loved that story. And then uh, in the interim, I actually read that story and felt that it really, really dragged. Um, <laughs> I, I, maybe we'll talk about that one time on the show, because... Uh, that's that's like a maybe like a four part story that somehow got nine parts it was really really strong on the decompression and uh i'm not sure how much of that was any particular creator's fault but uh it really 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 dragged um and actually i do have a lot to say about that so maybe we'll we'll put that on the treadmill before long Uh, But all told, this was a good book, really good time. It's one of those that I often see in the 50 Cent bin for whatever reason. Uh, It does have a very striking cover, so maybe it's just one that jumps out at me. Um, But it is uh, is an easy one to get, and uh, I think it's one that uh, I think a lot of people would enjoy. So I recommend it. Uh, Check it out if you can. This is a a real fun story. And... uh, for a little bit more on this story, uh, before we jump into the hot take, I'm going to send it over to part of my discussion with Kurt Busiek back in 2016, where he does discuss uh, his motivations behind this very issue. And uh, I was just listening to this the other day, and I I swear it sounds like Scott Bayo is interviewing him. I don't know why I sound so Bayo-ish in this clip. Uh, maybe it's just me, or, or maybe you'll think... Uh, that uh, Charles is in charge of you, too, when you listen to this. Uh, But when we get back, we will do the regular hot take. He said one of his first Justice League comics was number 224, where they battle Paragon. Uh And uh, the depiction of the Justice League, I guess, up to that point, was they were a little bit infighting. And uh, when you took that issue, they were uh, more chummy. Yeah. Was that a was that a decision of yours or was that a editorially pushed? Ah, uh, that was that was me. I mean, the the, the um, I had been pitching uh, some. I pitched a bunch of Justice League springboards for a, for a fill-in to Len Wein, and uh, and Len said these are all perfectly good, you know, Gardner Fox Justice League ideas, but I don't want Gardner Fox Justice League's ideas. Here's how I'd put it. I want Roy Thomas Avengers ideas, but with the Justice League. Gotcha. Um, you know, so basically he was saying I wanted a more Marvel-type story. Okay. So I went away and I came up with that story and I came back and he said, this is cool. Um, but I, I, you know, I know what, what uh, uh, you know, my view of the, the Justice League 
sometimes they get mad at each other. And, you know, Len himself, when he took over Justice League, started the Hawkman-Green Arrow feud and yeah. things like that. Um, but, uh, but I figured for the most part, they're experienced professionals who have been working with each other for a long time. So I opened with them getting together for, for, uh, uh, for lunch in Star City. And, uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's not a situation where they're going to be mad at each other. Uh, you know, under pressure, they might get sort of snippy at each other. But I thought it was, it, was, it was more fun to see them relaxing because that's not what we normally see with the DC characters. We do see that with Marvel characters, you know, off and on. Uh, and so I was, I was sort of, you know, what would what would somebody like Roy do here? Let's let's have them meet up in their secret identities and and be gregarious. Just hang out. Excellent, excellent. See. Okay, for this week's hot take, we're going to uh, stick with a uh, with a letters page, but in the spirit of Paragon and all things Paragon, we are going to read. The letters page from Justice League of America, issue 227. This has a June 1984 cover date, and all of the letter hacks will be discussing the issue we just looked at, Justice League of America number 224. Our first one comes to us by Thomas in uh, Ohio. He says, Dear Mr. Ween, I'm concerned about the current state of your book, Justice League of America. I understand from local comic shop owners and workers that the book does not sell as well as other DC comics, and the only issues that sell really well are those that feature the annual crossover with the Justice Society of America. I think that the book needs several changes in both the lineup of the heroes within the book and the general style of the book in order to make the book successful again. I've been an avid reader of the book since the 83rd issue, and have seen the book pass through the high points, such as the issues by yourself and Steve Englehart, and the low points, the last stint on the book by Mr. Conway. Everything that was put into the book by you and Mr. Engelhart, meaning the characterization over the action, has been undone by Conway to the point that the book has lost all characterization and seems to move aimlessly from one fight scene to the next, from villain to villain, with nothing really holding the book together except the logo on the cover. First, I feel the book is being held back by the characters featured in this book being the main characters in other series. Hey, we just talked about that. The problem with these characters is that nothing significant can happen to them within this book that would affect their regular strips. They are more or less simply a superpower in this book and not a character. I'm speaking of characters like The Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Superman, and the like. Readers want to see featured in the team books characters who are not seen anywhere else with any degree of regularity and are able to grow and develop within the book. A good example of this at DC Comics is the Teen Titans. These are all characters who are featured nowhere else and can evolve and change in the book. In the Teen Titans, you can have a character like Changeling lose his fortune or be near death for several issues, with real suspense being present. He isn't featured elsewhere, and the possibility is really present that he could be killed off. Such is not the case with many of the members of the JLA. If Wonder Woman or Flash is captured and placed in a death trap in the book, you know that they're going to be rescued and that they will have no real harm, they will come to no real harm because they have their own books to appear in each month. You can't do an issue with JLA that shows the members in their civilian identities as you could with the Titans. Well, this issue kind of, uh, <laughs> the, the issue we just discussed kind of, uh, flipped that one on its ear, but, uh, his point is well taken. Maybe this issue is the uh, exception that proves the rule. Um, he continues, 
the book needs to retain the characters that can change and evolve in the book. These characters would be Green Arrow, Black Canary, Hawkman, Hawkwoman, Red Tornado, Adam, and Zatanna. These characters are not featured elsewhere and could easily be changed and developed within this book. I realize that GA has a backup feature in Detective Comics, but let's face the fact that it's a tr- truly is a poor strip. Oh, don't hold anything back, Thomas. Uh, all of the villains are second-rate, and there's not room to develop him or his relationship with the Canary. Okie doke. I would like to see already established members of the DC Universe become members of the JLA. Perhaps the Black Orchid, Captain Comet, the Martian Manhunter, or any number of other choices. Secondly, the satellite that houses the League needs to be done away with in favor of a headquarters on the Earth. They could still house their monitoring systems within a new headquarters, and they could always use the Hawk spaceship to travel through outer space. The answer is not in reactivating the old mountain headquarters, but perhaps an underground base that could be reached by teleporters that the members have within their belts or other pieces of equipment. I think that it's hard for readers to identify with heroes who meet in outer space headquarters. It's so far removed from our planet. And the outer space headquarters doesn't suit the aura that has been set up for heroes like Green Arrow or the Atom. They are more earthbound heroes. I wonder what old Thomas thought about Detroit. Uh, maybe maybe he wrote back <laughs> maybe he wrote letters in the Detroit era we'll have to track down. He goes on. Again, I make these suggestions only with the intention of improving the book both sales-wise and in the reader's ability to identify with the heroes and their situations. The change in the roster by getting rid of the characters who are featured elsewhere would make the reader feel that they are getting the whole picture of who the hero or heroine is and not just bits and pieces of the character. Readers want to get the entire picture of their character and what is going on in his or her life. I would definitely be interested in expanding on the idea that I have put forth in this letter. I hope that you will take seriously the ideas that I have presented to you. I think that you should know that I am not suggesting this, hoping you will get, you will make these changes and give me credit if they're successful. Oh boy. That is the least of my worries. I am writing to you... To me- merely with the hope that these ideas will help to improve the book and make it more successful in both casual reader circles and within the fan readership. Whatever you decide, I wish you good luck in the future. Wowzers. Well, Mr. Ween replies with, You're going to like at least some of the changes slated for the JLA, Thomas. I still don't want to disclose all the details, but I can promise you this. You'll be seeing a lot more of members who don't have regular titles of their own generally for the reasons you offer in your letter. As is well known, we're going to be including some new JLA members too, and some of them will be drawn from the ranks of the lesser known, but very deserving DC heroes. Concerning the JLA headquarters, well, wait and see. Yeah, this is not too far off from the Detroit League kicking off, so he uh, probably didn't want to put the cart before the horse there, and and he wasn't lying about some uh, lesser known or not even created yet characters like Vibe and Gypsy and Vixen and uh, Commander Steel or whatever he was at that point. It's uh, definitely not uh, not the A-League, the A-League at this point, right? Uh, still fun stories, but... Uh, and, I, and I think Jerry Conway comes back for that, so I wonder if uh, Thomas will have a problem with that. Who knows? Um, but yeah, this is uh, an interesting one to read in the letters page that's discussing issue 224, which did try at least to implement a little bit of the characterization and a little bit of a civilian get-together at the start of the issue. It was brief, of course, but it was there, and it was uh, definitely welcome there. Um, Let's get to our next letter here, and this is by 
a John in Oregon. He says, Dear Editor, I've never seen Kurt Busiek's name in my DC Comics before, but I sincerely hope I see it again soon. The supremacy factor in JLA 224 was well-conceived, solidly written, and showed a good eye for detail, sometimes absent in this book. I was especially glad to see some use made of Martin Stein, Firestorm's dormant personality. Stein appears only rarely in Firestorm's scenes outside his own comic, and the nuclear man just isn't the same with only half of his personality in evidence. I don't quite understand why he's quoting Poe, but some of the League's other writers could take a cue from Busick and make sure that both sides of Firestorm's character are kept in evidence here. That's very true. I'm not really much of a Firestorm guy. I, I really... It's one of those characters I really want to like. Um, and everything about it uh, on paper is stuff I should like, but for whatever reason I just have trouble getting into it. I don't know why. But I, I do appreciate the fact that uh, Busick did put both sides of the personality in there, even, even as briefly as it was. Uh, he continues, One comment on the missing eye for detail, though. Look at Paragon on the bottom of page 3. His right hand is bare. And while we can't see the other, it's safe to assume he wasn't walking around with one glove on. Or is it? The first panel on page 4 shows both hands gloved. The third panel highlights a gloved left hand, and the fourth shows at least at, at, the same left hand pair again. At least it's on the same flesh tone as the mugger's head. On page five, he's got both gloves on again, and they stay there, finally. Yes, it's a small point, especially in an otherwise strong issue. With Dick Giordano involved, how could it be otherwise? Still, detail is what makes for a satisfying reading, and little things can add up. In the meantime, I hope someone can answer Firestorm's question. I, wow, could you imagine <laughs> keeping track of a coloring error? You know, I guess uh, if uh, Stanley were answering these, he'd probably open it up for a no prize. I, I don't know if anybody out there listening knows a reason why Paragon might have taken his gloves off in between panels or, or what it was. I don't know. Now we're going to look at Matthew in Pittsburgh. He gives a letter here. Oh, he wrote a letter to uh, Mr. Ween saying, Since JLA 224, the supremacy factor was a one-shot, I would give it a passing C-. Hmm. But be warned, any attempt at a steady diet of this type of writing will be met with disapproval by me. Uh-oh. I was willing to give Kurt Busiek a chance. I am hoping that a young writer who can write without today's form-over-content form over attitude can be found. Unfortunately, Kurt didn't get past page one without lapsing into the modern trap and fell into so many after it, I can't help but enumerate. And what follows is a list <laughs> enumerating. So let's jump right in. Page one. I still wonder what is fa the fascination for fans in seeing heroes fraternizing in print. Moreover, because the because there is so little socializing shown, they conclude it isn't done often enough when a better conclusion is that socializing not directly connected with stories should happen between issues. I don't know if I just bungled that line or if it just uh, was word salad there, but uh, I think what he's trying to say here is that uh, leave, leave the fraternizing for the in-between panels and in-between issues and uh, just give us the action, which... I don't dis I, I don't agree with I should say his next point pages two and three wow we're not even skipping a page here once again muggers are referred to as nothing but animals suggesting law-abiding people are civilized 
Everybody has traits in common with animals, and while I'm not saying we should revel in this, we shouldn't deny it either. Uh, I, I, I didn't come here to argue semantics with, uh, with Matthew in Pittsburgh, but I guess I'm staying for it. Um, <laughs> come on, dude. <laughs> this is a superhero book. Come on. Uh, page four. Though we are not above the law scene, seen monthly in some books. I'd have to pull the issue out. I don't know what he's talking about. Page 7, the admiration for one's foes, both by Black Canary and Paragon. So they showed respect for each other. Okay. Page 7, again, the fighting with all... The fighting with all one's skill just to stay even with the villain. Once again, this is forced into one panel, which makes it very unbelievable. And I assure you I'm reading this verbatim, so either I'm not doing it with the right inflection or he wrote with... Uh, Poor inflection, if that's possible, I don't know. Page 9, the panel telling us that people make the difference. What's wrong with that? Uh, page 10, Superman shows up without his super brain. Jor-El would have disapproved. Mathematical equations have a certain form, and chemical equations have a certain other form. A high school science student would be able to tell the difference even if he or she didn't understand the equations. Uh, page 11, Paragon wins three Nobel Prizes and they don't recognize him. Einstein won only one. Sivania won only one. Okay. Page 16, Firestorm's brain goes out to lunch. Yeah, the clamps might be resistant to your powers, but what about the wall holding the clamps? Afraid big round gray bracelet might clash with your puffy red sleeves? Wow, Matthew. Matthew, Matthew. Page 17. We're, there are still a couple more. Uh, motivation. I want to make the world a better place. Granted, in this case, it was sinister, but I still have seen too much of this. Well, I mean, Paragon wanted to get rid of 90% of the world's population to make it a better place for him to control. He's a villain. He's crazy. I mean, that's a... Uh, I, I don't know. Page 18. Gag. Choke. He's a mutant. Curse a certain magazine for making all sorts of people believe that shifting one microscopic gene would make that much difference. I can see it now. To save time, Henry Higgins mutates Liza Doolittle. I think that's a reference to literature, but uh, I'm too dense for that, so I will uh, not expound. Um, again, what's, what's wrong with this dude having a latent ability? I mean, if we can believe that, uh, that Superman can fly and... Oh, man. Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. Um, he continues, Although the ending was good, I prefer a more a more thinking ending. If Paragon absorbs better skills than the original, by any logic, he must be more susceptible to that person's weakness. Why? Where do you... Why? Where do you get that from, Matthew? Uh, the other thing I take obje objection to is the comment in the letter... Oh, boy. He's going to complain about the letters page, too. So let's get on there. The other thing I take objection to is the comment in the letters page that the new JLA writer has to be able to come up with a world-threatening menace every issue. First, I point out that looking over the past years, world-threatening has been the exception rather than the rule. Second, a good writer can turn in a story that involves a minor threat. Remember Gardner Fox stories like Man Thy Name Is Brother, Panic From A Black Mailbox, and Time Signs A Death Warrant For The Justice League, in which the JLA never left their headquarters. Whew. Well, Len replies with a woo. <laughs> you said a mouthful, Matthew. Some of your objection objections seem more a matter of personal preference than objective criticism to me. I agree. But I thank you for your detailed comments. 
Concerning the fraternization of heroes, some readers like to know that these larger-than-life figures can relax between adventures. See the next letter. Some, you for example, require a much tighter plot than Kurt provided, where every scene, even the moments of lesser tension, is tied directly with the overall story. Again, Paragon's comments that muggers are nothing but animals is his own opinion, so far as any of us know. Even so, to say that lawbreakers are animals is not to say that law-abiders are removed from the animal kingdom. Law-abiding people don't roam in packs stalking prey, however. That means that at least in their outward actions, they are civilized. Anyway, if you're saying that the story is riddled with cliches, I think you're overstating the case for sure. For example, admiration for one's foes makes sense when one foe is putting up an extraordinarily good fight. It, however, you're, if, however, you're saying the story was not your cup of tea, I accept that. And I'm very grateful to you for taking the time to let us know what you want. Len just uh, really, really bringing the, uh, the tact to that reply. I'm not sure, I'm not sure this uh, missive really uh, earned that, but uh, good, on, good on Len for, uh, for being uh, diplomatic. Uh, we got another letter here. This one's from Rodney in Gilroy, California. Dear Creators, Justice League of America number 224 was one of the best issues ever. It was great to see the members, at least three of them, meeting out of costume and generally being regular people. It was too brief, however, and there was not enough of the human interaction shown. There could have been more mention of Hal, Green Lantern, Jordan's exile. After all, he was gone for a year. The others could have mentioned some aspect of what was going on in their alter ego lives. In future issues, show situations like these. Clark Kent summed it up best in the first page, saying, We really should do this more often. Also, Dick Giordano's inking on Chuck Patton's pencils gave it a whole new style. It would be great to have Dick Giordano and Romeo Tangal or Pablo Marcos alternating on the inking duties to give the magazine some variety from month to month. JLA is getting better all the time. Next letter is from Jim in Nashua. He says, Dear Len, I have one problem with the JLA, the location of the satellite headquarters. Page 9 of issue 224 states that it is in synchronous orbit 22,300 miles directly above Midtown Metropolis. This is not possible. A synchronous orbit has to be located directly over the equator, or is Metropolis located in South America or Africa? To this, Len says, whoops, you're right, Jim, we stand corrected. So, Len, uh, Len, he does take the punches when they are warranted, I suppose. Now, the next letter here comes from Stephen. He is from the Committee on Green Guys and Ambush Bugs, and he comes to us from Iowa. He says, I have a couple of short comments on JLA 224. First, the story and art were great as usual. It's always nice seeing Mr. Giordano in the, in the illustration credits. Second, as to the recent trend in the letters column, why indeed don't you bring back John Jones? I always did like green guys, and uh, just to make your day complete, think of this. Wouldn't the ambush bug have a great time bouncing, popping, and whatever through these pages? Well, Stephen, I'm a big fan of Martian Manhunter myself, but uh, I don't think I want the ambush bug in the Justice League, just like I don't want folks like, you know, John Constantine and... Uh, Swamp Thing and Dead Men as, as Justice League members. I, I think that uh, they work better in other ways. I'm uh, going to go to our final letter here from Jeff in California. He says, Dear Len, JLA-224 was fantastic. Paragon is an interesting villain. I hope we see Paragon in other, t- in other team books like the New Teen Titans or Batman and the Outsiders. 
When will we see the Atom again? His last appearance in the JLA was issue 216. Does his not showing up in the JLA have something to do with his miniseries? Yes, probably does. I would like to see Batgirl, Martian Manhunter, and Snapper Carr join the league. Yeah, poor Snapper Carr. Not, not a lot of people like him. Uh, I, I, I've grown to really really appreciate his, uh, his weirdness there. And I, I can finally tell him apart from Rick Jones now. Uh, now Len re- replies with, Well, Jeff, I hope you've seen enough of the Atom in these pages for a, for a while now because he's going to take another leave of absence. Ray Palmer was indeed unable to help out on JLA Adventures while he was trapped in a six-inch height in the Amazon jungles. And here comes the plug. As the editor of the Sword of the Atom special, I have the pleasure to announce that he's going to be back in search of Morled in about 30 days. Therefore, he won't be able to help out for many a moon to come. And there you have it. Most of the folks there really, really dug this issue, at least the ones that wrote in, except for one guy who was, uh, I don't know, he, <laughs> he and I just uh, wouldn't see eye to eye on very many comic things, I am uh, assuming. Uh, but that will do it for the hot take. All right, that's all I got for you this week. Uh, you can all go about, back about your business. Uh, I will take up no more of your time today. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find us at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think I already said that. We're on Facebook somewhere. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mill. Reggie is at Reggie Reggie, and I am at Ace Comics. If you want to check out the site that this show is named after, you can do so at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. And while you're there, if you see a book that you'd like to hear me talk about on the air, just uh, let me know, and I'll throw it on the list. Also, if while you're there, you see a book you'd like to discuss with me on the air, let me know, and we'll see what we can work out. Thank you so, so much for visiting. I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. So long for now. See ya. See ya.